Welcome to Welcome to the Uncharted Territories. I'm Max. And I'm Tina. And we're here today with PK Tech Girl, the somethingth episode of season one. We're doing these in production order, not airing order, so that makes it kind of confusing. It's the seventh production order episode. Mm. Interestingly, this is the first episode to be shot just as one episode. Before this, they were shooting two episodes at a time, which I it seems like a bad idea to me. And yet... This is probably one of my least favorite episodes we've done thus far. Okay, so I'm glad you brought that up. Mm-hmm. I know that I've been anticipating this episode because I love this episode, but I'm thinking maybe you'll like this episode better when we rewatch the series later after you've seen the whole thing. Okay. I think maybe there's a lot of stuff in this episode that is resonant later, because this is one of my favorite episodes. All right. This episode was written by Nan Hagen, who only wrote this episode of Farscape. Uh, she wrote some other episodes of Sliders mm. and a couple episodes of Dawson's Creek. Oh, really? Yeah. But this is the only episode of Farscape that she ever did. But this episode was directed by Tony Tilze. Now, we haven't brought him up before, mm-hmm. but you'll all hear his name a lot because he directed a lot of episodes of Farscape, including some of the best episodes. He directed The Way We Weren't. He directed Look at the Princess. They had a lot of fun with the titles of this uh, show, didn't they? I think sci-fi shows in general tend to have a lot of fun with titles. But he's one of the more prolific Farscape directors. So we'll, we'll see him. We'll be seeing him a lot in the future. And as far as the direction of this episode, mm-hmm. uh, that's another thing I thought was interesting that you're not caring for this episode that much because when we were doing our once upon a time podcast welcome to storybrook mm-hmm. you always preferred the episodes that kind of leaned on horror movie tropes and this one definitely does that this one is definitely really i think of it more as an action movie trope heavy uh episode well i mean they're fighting generic battle toad people in a smoke and steam factory well, I mean, the comparison to this episode is Alien, which is a horror movie in space, but I guess it is also a quintessential 80s action movie. I'd say Aliens, which is when the franchise goes from horror to action horror. Oh, see, this felt much more alien to me. It takes place on a ghost ship. Yeah, but there's a, a lot of them, a lot of the battle toads they have to deal with, and they have the weird powers. And... There are battle toads in this episode. Yeah. I never played the game, so I don't know if Battletoads had special powers or not, but they are frogs with superpowers, so. I don't know if they spit fire or not. These Battletoads spit fire. Did you ever play the game? No, I never played the game. Yeah, same. I Honestly, I thought it was just a Saturday morning cartoon. I didn't. I forgot there was a game that goes with it. Ah. Let's begin. Uh, yes, so we begin with... A super close shot of Rigel's eye, like lost style we are like zoomed in all the way on his eye it is very lost he's going to have a bunch of flashbacks that i guess kind of relate to the main plot in that this is the ship where he was being held captive when he was first captured yeah this is the first ship he was tortured on for some reason his scenes all felt really disconnected from the main plot to me huh interesting when i think of this episode i think of his scenes as being the plot of this episode even though when we were watching it, they don't take up a lot of time. Mm. But they're the ones that stick with me. Yeah. Now, I have to say, a lot of confidence on the part of the Jim Henson Creature Shop for them to begin on a tight, tight shot of the puppet's eye. Yeah. And, and it works. It, it it doesn't look fake, so good for them. 
That's why we ended up seeing this shot redone several thousand times in J.J. Abrams stuff later. Do you think J.J. Abrams was really inspired by Farscape? I wouldn't be totally surprised if he was. I would love to hear that J.J. Abrams was completely inspired by Farscape. Well, not as obviously as the people who did Guardians of the Galaxy, but... I do feel like... Now I'm, now I'm going to notice it and be watching for it, but I do feel like there are a lot of lens flares in Farscape. Mm. Not as much as in anything. literally anything J.J. Abrams has done, but I feel like they do their share of lens flares. Mm. So they're looking at an abandoned Peacekeeper ship. Yes. In the, I mean, I guess it's all in the negative zone, the galaxy of terror, the yeah. uncharted territories. I was going to say, it's the name of our show, man. <laughs> okay, this is the first episode where I really feel like attention has been brought to the fact that everyone is lost and not just John. Because I never really got the impression that the other people didn't know where they were. Yeah, and that's going to be a big part of the plot in next week's episode, too. No one knows how to get home because... John did that slingshotty thing that just shot them out in the middle of nowhere. Well, and it's not just because John did a slingshotty thing. Although, yes, John did the slingshotty thing that shot them into the middle of nowhere. But additionally, I think it emphasizes how this is not a Star Trek universe. I mean, I know we have Voyager, but this is not a universe where knowledge is super readily available to everyone. So, you know, if you imagine you're on a ship and you just are drifting out there... It just seems weird that they don't ask anyone at any point, because they've had several encounters by now. They could have asked, like, uh, that cousin race of Dargos, you know. They... Well, things kind of went south with them before they got around to asking. Yeah, but it just doesn't feel like that's been part of the show up to this point. I mean, the only thing they I'm... were They were looking for star charts from them. That was one of the things they were asking for. And the next episode, the thing that, the inciting incident is specifically going to be them going to a specific person that they have heard can provide star charts to them. That's going to be the inciting incident. Is it the Frankenstein guy? It's the Frankenstein guy. I remember liking that episode. Interestingly, that guy is both Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster. Oh. Yes. Take that, pedants. Wait, or is he? I do want to point out, though, when they see this abandoned ship, it's the Zalbinian, and we'll talk about what the Zalbinian is in a second, but everyone except Rigel wants to go on and raid it for, you know, bits. you bits and they talk about all of the other ships that they've come across and raided which lets us know that things are happening in this show off screen off screen they're having adventures that we don't see so they're probably looking for star charts off screen things that we don't see last time we dealt with this sort of situation was in that one where time kept on resetting for john it was when they found they saw the ship that was having the distress signal and Rigel was all like, hey, why don't we just wait until those two people are dead and then raid their ship for stuff? Yeah. So it's it's interesting that he's taking the opposite tack here. I think this episode just reminds me of worse versions of other episodes. Huh. Like, Aaron's plot is a worse version of uh, her learning about tech last episode. Last episode is really good. Thank God It's Friday Again is a great episode. And Rigel's origin, really, like, his origin stuff in this episode feels like a weaker version of when he was prisoner with that Cthulhu thing. Yeah, yeah. Thrown for a loss. Yeah. I I can honestly see both of those. Although... 
not to spoil this episode, but Durka is kind of a terrifying villain. We don't get a lot of that in this episode, but in Durka Returns, we'll see it. Also, still no uh, Krace. Okay. Like, he gets a Okay, so it's so weird watching this with you, because it does, like a lot of shows, it takes Farscape a little while to kind of get going. Mm -hmm. So watching the first season and talking about each first season episode with you really highlights that. But also one of the things it highlights that I never noticed before is how much this insane military commander from the credit sequence does not show up at first. Thank you. I'm like, he's mentioned in every opening credits and we haven't seen him since i think the pilot i think you're right now i will say that while he does not show up here at least we know that the threat of him is out there and there's someone else from his ship there who is he rex and hannah from charmed from our charmed podcast we know there's a big bad out there somewhere and they're probably doing stuff although at least in charmed Rex and Hannah occasionally show up. I, well, I was going to say the opening credits doesn't have a sequence where they're like, the big thing that is motivating us is the fear of these two people. Whereas this show has a sequence in the opening credits where John says... Insane military commander. And you know what? I keep saying DNA Mad Scientist is going to be the next episode we do. That's incorrect. The next episode we're going to do is that old black magic. In which not only does Crace appear, but we learn his backstory. Oh, is this the one where Zan, uh, it's a Zan episode, right? Okay, I don't know, because I thought this episode was a Rigel episode, and I would not have described that old black magic as being a Zan episode, but she does have an important plot in it, so. Uh, Unlike in this one, where I don't think she does anything. She might even have more than a few lines in this one. She stays on Moya while everyone else goes on this Albinian. Zan is not feeling it this week. Yeah, yeah, she needed a break. They needed to not put her in so much makeup, as we have also discussed. Mm. So, back to the actual episode itself. So, it turns out the ship that's floating in space is the Zalbinian, which is this historic, legendary peacekeeper vessel. And it was lost in battle, and no one knows what happened to it. It was the biggest ship, it was the best ship, it was the most powerful ship, and now here it is, disabled. My ship, which I have loved like a woman is now disabled. Dear God, who writes this? Is that a Zach Brannigan line? Uh, no, it, it's from the uh, Star Trek episode of Futurama, where Melvar makes them perform his fan script. Oh, yes, yes. I, I do have to say it's a shame that on this podcast, as opposed to our Charmed podcast, mm-hmm. we don't have a which part of this episode felt most like the 90s to you segment. Mm-hmm. Because Dargo is explaining that he says... The ship is legendary, even in my culture. It was thought invincible. And oh, John says, uh, we'll just ask Leonardo DiCaprio about that. Yeah, yeah, this is, that is a very timely reference. He must have seen that, like, right before the space mission. Yeah. Right before my big space mission, I'm going to see that James Cameron movie everyone's talking about. For, for our younger viewers, that's a reference to Titanic. Mm. Titanic came out a long time ago, Max. Do you realize that? It did. It's, like, what, over 20 years now? Oh, my God. Well, it's going to be nothing compared to Avatar 2. Oh, aren't you super psyched for Avatar 2? God. When he's like, oh yeah, it's going to it's gonna destroy Avengers Endgame or... Yeah, I think Endgame... I think Endgame beat Infinity War, so yeah. Yeah. 
and it's like uh, uh, the original Avatar wasn't that good. Like it 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 was all about special effects. Well, I'm gonna say I blame us, and by us I mean all of us, because we all knew it wasn't that good. Nobody really cared about the story, which was just Dances with Wolves in Space. Nobody really cared about anything except we all heard, oh, the special effects are amazing, and the 3D was really good. Yeah. So we all heard, oh, the 3D is revolutionary, you have to see it in theaters. So we all went and saw it in theaters. In 3D. In 3D. And now, for whatever reason, James Cameron thinks it's something we wanted to see. There's a goddamn theme park. Who asked for that? Right? Well, apparently I read this thing about these people who had, like, Pandora depression because it wasn't a place they could ever live, which is really beyond me because what about that world made you want to live there? Like, it was kind of pretty, yeah, but you have to deal with the incredible creatures like the six-legged rhino or... I mean, I think the worst thing about living in Pandora would be having to deal with the humans who've shown up to Pandora. I don't get people who got lost in that world. Like, it was pretty to look at for a couple of hours, but... You know, you're right, though. I'm not being fair when I say nobody cared about it, because I think it would be more accurate to say almost nobody cared about it, and the people who did care cared a lot. I remember now seeing people who had, like, intense Avatar tattoos and things like that. But the thing is, like, it left... I'm not breaking any molds here by saying this. It left no cultural impact, though. Yeah, like, that's true. There's no fan fiction. There's barely any fan art. Like, people misremember large parts of the plot. It's not something that gets discussed or dissected or even referenced all that often. It did introduce us all to the phrase unobtainium, though. Oh. I think it gets credit for that. Are, are you sure? Because I feel like TV Tropes had that as a thing before that movie came out. No, no. I think that's when we started using the word unobtainium, which I will point out is a real element. Uh. It's it's like, an to use a TV tropes phrase, it's an aluminum Christmas tree. Yeah. Something that seems like it must be fake, but is actually real. So the Zalbinian. Yeah, the Zalbinian. Big ass ship, very important, very indestructible, except for apparently not. So they're all going to go and raid it for bits, but Rigel refuses. Because, you know, of his history. He, Which he has not yet shared, but yes, because of his history. This is a big episode if you like people walking down hallways. A lot of walking down hallways. I think you meant to say it's atmospheric. Mm. Like the Blair Witch Project. Wait, did you not like the Blair Witch Project now? Yes, I, I was not a fan of the Blair Witch what? Project. It was so boring. Oh my god, we'll talk about this later after the podcast. I don't know. I didn't see it in theaters. I feel like it's probably one of the things you have to see in theaters to really enjoy. You know, like... Uh, What's that movie where there's a demon or something and the guy set up cameras all over the house to record it and it's mostly just... Paranormal activity? Yeah, paranormal activity. Like, it's mostly just a guy having really boring arguments with his wife until the last, like, 12 minutes. Okay, I haven't seen paranormal activity. Okay, I, I, I feel like these things are scary if you see them in the movie theater, but if you're watching them at home, you're more likely to get bored and start doing other things. Okay, I mean, that might be, I did see it in theaters, and not just in theaters, but at a special showing in a theater with the guys who made it. Hmm. So, like, I can it, it was that. an audience that was primed to see it. This is a this is a tangent on top of a tangent, mm-hmm. but for people who don't remember, the thing about the Blair Witch Project that I think was so amazing was, of course, the viral marketing for it. Oh, yeah. 
where they introduced this, and this is just just at the beginning of the internet being a thing, and all of these internet stories are coming out about about these kids who were filming this documentary in the woods, and they got lost, but the footage was recovered, and they put it together, and... It's like the original creepypasta. Yes! Oh, exactly! That's exactly. For those of you who don't know, uh, creepypasta is... A horror story that's told on the internet as though it was a real event that actually happened and is being recounted later by someone who was involved with it. Like a manufactured urban legend. Yeah. And and honestly, after it became clear that this was a movie and this was marketing, it actually became even cooler because then the story of how they made the movie came out, which was essentially they sent these three actors out into the woods and harassed them and harassed them they're like they actually spent the time in the woods and they honestly you know what it was they essentially filmed a larp because they told them you know go into that town and interview people and then they had people planted to tell them certain stories and at night they would run through where the kids were sleeping and bang on the tent and they would like set up creepy things for them to find and stuff like that so yeah essentially they filmed a larp so it was even cooler when you found out, like, how it was filmed. But at the screening I was at, there was one person who was not caught up yet. Mm-hmm. And when we were asking the filmmaker questions, this person asked, well, how did the families of these missing kids feel about you doing this film? And, like, it was silent in the theater. We were all like, we don't know how to respond to this person. And then the filmmaker, one of them was like, I don't want to spoil it. And then we all just kind of moved on. God. That would embarrass me years later if I was that person. Oh my god. I was actually, as I was recounting that story, because it's just a funny story, but as I was recounting it, I was like, god, I I hope that person isn't one of the people who listens to our podcast. I mean, whatever. It was the point of the marketing. You know what else had really good marketing? And although, I mean, I don't think it was, I also don't think it was that good of a movie, but the original Cloverfield. Yeah, and they did the same kind of thing. Yeah, they had, like, these fake websites for, like, the soda that's in the movie that's, you know, hinted to be responsible for waking up the monster. They had all these, like, backwards recordings you could play if you looked at the right places on the internet. There's even, you can, if you look hard enough at the poster, they have the monster in a reflection in the poster. Oh, they that's ha- cool. Yeah, they have half of its face, and if you just doubled this one part of the poster, you could see what the monster looked like before the movie came out. Oh, that is really cool. So, I'm not in the Cloverfield fandom. I'm not sure if there is a Cloverfield fandom. I think they're probably... I mean, they keep making them, so probably. But, well, that's my point. I understand that there is a huge alternate universe of Cloverfield fiction that you can dive into and get, like, really deep into. And I respect that, even though I don't know a lot about it, since, as I said, I'm not in that fandom. Hey, we came back to J.J. Abrams again. That's weird. There we go. All right, let's talk about let's talk about the actual episode, though. Yes, back to... Uh... Let's, let's, get, let's get back to Farscape from J.J. Abrams. So, John is talking about, you know, for such a big fancy ship, it looks like a real crap hole. Because it's all run down and stuff. But this is part of his conversation with Aaron about the fact that she grew up on a ship. I think John is just starting to realize 
because Aaron is the only person who looks like a human that he hangs out with on a daily basis. And I think he's starting to realize how very different her life is from his. She has never lived on a planet. For her, what's normal is to be confined and have everything around her be manufactured. This episode is not very well lit. I guess that kind of also goes into the horror Again, I think you mean atmospheric. Yeah. In some scenes, the majority of the lighting is actually coming from the flashlights that the actors are holding. Yeah, that kind of made me curious about why they're not using lanterns. Like, I've used flashlights before in the past, but I feel like lanterns are generally better for lighting your way if you're trying to look around an area than flashlights. They definitely are. Also, we're not doing a segment right now, but... Some sort of, like, reverse distant part of the universe. It seems strange that their flashlights would be exactly like our flashlights, but here we are. Yeah. I I was pointing out that this scene is about John realizing that he really is in a distant part of the universe, but, wow, those flashlights sure do look exactly like the Earth flashlights you would buy at Sears. Hmm. Meanwhile, back on Moya, the ship. Right. I can't say back on the ship because they're also on the ship. Right, either Moya or the Zalbanian. Yeah, back on Moya, Zan and Rigel are having a conversation about why he didn't go with them. And he's like, I don't want to talk about it. I'm just going to sit here and think about it really hard. And she's like, oh, yeah, not like I'm a telepath or anything. He, okay, she's not, that, she's not that kind of telepath. She's not reading his mind right now. He tries to pass it off that he's just not interested in looting because he's above that. And Zan's like, you love looting. You loot all the time. It's definitely not that. I do love how kind of Zan's like, you know what? I don't really care. <laughs> like, she's she's pointing out that his motivation, normally, he'd go on and loot with them. But whatever. She's got her own stuff to deal with. Zan's like, a lot of my plot has been bringing out the humanity in other people. I think maybe we should focus on me for a, for a hot second. Even though in this episode we will not. Yeah, not in this episode. Back on the ship, John, Aaron, and Dargo realize that, essentially, it's it's been preluded. Scavengers have come before them, and anything of value has pretty much already been taken. But John points out that one of the consoles has lights that are still on. So... Not very good looters, then. Well... I mean, I guess they probably got the more valuable stuff. Oh, what I meant is that somebody is on this ship right now. Uh, As John says, unless you have the world's best car batteries... So, John finds a corpse, and then the blonde people attack. Yes, a person, a Sebastian person, a peacekeeper, was hiding underneath the desiccated space, desiccated corpses. Gross. Yes. So, the corpses that we see are all mummified, I'm sure, for standards and practice reasons. Hmm. Or maybe even just for not being a gore-fest reasons. Yes. But Aaron tells us at one point that it's because... They've been space desiccated. So they're basically mummies now instead of, you know, corpses. So this blonde peacekeeper shows up. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, good thing we're not in our Charmed podcast. Oh, yeah. Because things do not go well for blonde women in Charmed. But this is not Charmed. This is Farscape where the blonde people live. No, in fact, it's good for her that she's a small blonde woman. Because when she runs out, Aaron and Dargo are like, oh no, a peacekeeper, shoot it! But John, who is not of this world, is like, um, no, it's just a small blonde woman. Definitely don't shoot her. And saves her life. I mean, I guess it's good for her, and apparently she becomes a good character later in the show. But honestly, it feels like bad instinct on John's part. Sexism. That's sexism, John. 
Yeah, no, I mean, if it had been, if it had, if this had been a peacekeeper marauder, he would not have jumped in front of them and tried to stop them from being shot. But because it was Jelena, her name is Jelena, mm. John saves her life, which turns out to be good for them, to be fair. This whole episode feels very non-invest, like the characters don't feel invested in what they're doing. Aaron has this weird jealousy thing towards Jelena, which feels totally artificial for her character up to this point. And, like, suddenly she has a big anti-science boner, even though last episode she was so excited about learning how to do science, even though it's something that, yes, is frowned upon in her species or whatever. But you think it wouldn't be, considering that they need science to do better war? It's not that it's frowned upon. It's that in... I mean, it's disrespected. It's yes, not an exactly. Profession, but... Yeah, in the hierarchy of her society... She, as a warrior, is above this tech girl. Yeah. But, like, she was so excited about learning tech last episode, it feels weird that she's like, oh, she's a lowly tech girl. Also, like, your warrior shtick doesn't mean crap if other people have better science than you. I mean, that is accurate. But she's also used to being in a place where they have the best tech and it's not really a question. Mm. When we come back from credits, Aaron is interrogating Jelena about who she is and why she's there. Angelina claims that she's a tech girl mm-hmm. from Crace's ship and that she is there investigating the ship just like they are. Seems weird that she ended up in the same part of the universe they did. Random happenstance and all that. Well, I mean, it's not random. She's from Crace's ship and Crace is chasing John. So I guess we have to assume that the crew of Moya are leaving enough of a trace behind them that Crace is able to chase them. Mm. And... The reason that Crace is not here in this episode is because they came, they investigated the ship, Crace left Jelena and a couple of guys with her to see if there was anything salvageable on the ship, and then he took off to keep chasing John. Oh, ironic. He's really bad. Wait, so was Moya here before then, or? No, no. Then why did they stop here in the first place? Because they saw the Zalbinian. Remember in the opening, we established the Zalbinian is a cultural treasure to the Peacekeepers. It was like their most legendary ship. It seems weird that he, whatever thing he has for tracking Moya, didn't tell him that Moya was on the way to the place where he was. Well, I don't think he's tracking them, like, from a technological aspect. I think he's literally just stopping places and asking if they've seen ah. this crew. He'd have luck on that other planet, assuming the insurrection goes poor well i guess no matter which way the insurrection goes he's probably going to figure out that they were there yeah definitely so john is defending the blonde girl like just because she was part of grace's ship doesn't mean blah 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 we probably shouldn't just go around murdering people and aaron's like okay she's gonna go back to grace's ship and say that she saw us and that he's gonna be able to track us even more than he already is although this doesn't come up until later in the episode but it's really in her best interest not to say anything, given what happened with Aaron in the pilot. And that actually will come up in this episode. And yeah, we'll yeah, be... it, it's, it's part of how they resolve this. Yeah, what? it will be heavily implied to be the reason that Jelena doesn't sell them out. Which, you know, I mean, really, cr- it, it's on Crace, right? Like, Well, I mean, it's more irony, right? Crace, when we do finally see him, will be shown as a man who is destroyed by his own fanaticism, Hmm. right? So in this case, if he wasn't so obsessed with finding John, 
He'd have stayed behind on the Zalbenian the way he should have, and John would have come right to him. Also, Jelena is way more, as they called Aaron, irreversibly contaminated mm. by alien contact than Aaron ever was. And yet, because of the way he treated Aaron, the very thing that they feared from her will come from Jelena. On the Zalbinian, Jelena continues to tell her story and says that she had a crew of marauders protecting her, but right after Crace left, another ship showed up, people came on board and attacked them, she hid, and basically the guys who were supposed to be guarding her were wiped out. How much did the marauders suck? They were talked up so much in their initial episode, but they've got their asses handily kicked in every episode. I was going to say she specifically says it was a crew of marauders, which means that it's like the ultra combat guys that we saw in an earlier episode, and they were just totally wiped out by the aliens that came on this ship. Yeah, the the, the marauders are supposed to be like super marines, but John beat them by turning up the heat a little bit, and these frog guys just belched fire on them until they died. Yeah, no, I mean, you're right. This isn't speaking well to the Peacekeeper military. That's, that's, that is a fact. They had much more trouble with regular uh, Peacekeeper grunts. Well, I mean, there were, there are more Peacekeeper grunts. I think it's just a numbers game. <laughs> I do, I do. I think that they just swarm people. Which also points to the warrior culture shtick being dumb. Yeah, well, I think the show would agree with you on that. You don't win by having more training and honor and stuff you win by having more people with more weapons yeah yeah so rigel comes over to the zalbinian to look for everyone else and he's basically gonna face his demons i don't think when he comes over to the zalbinian i'm trying to remember i don't think he actually ever meets up with everyone else like he has his own little side adventure in an entirely different part of the zalbinian but Rigel goes over to supposedly get the rest of the crew because they aren't responding on comms. But what's actually going to happen is he's going to face his demons and have all sorts of flashbacks. Yeah, he's going on a little character side quest. Yeah. Meanwhile, John is trying to... He's using his bard skills to try to seduce the enemy. Try? Successfully seduce the enemy. Which... I think it's cute. She, she tells him, thank you for saving my life. And he says, I try to save a life a day. Although usually it's mine. It is cute. Meanwhile, Aaron is grumpy. Yeah, Aaron is grumpy with Dargo because John is out making friends with the enemy. And Dargo is grumpy too because he's like, I barely got used to you, Aaron. I definitely am not about to get used to another peacekeeper. I keep forgetting Dargo's in this episode because it seems like they spend a lot of their time ignoring him. His moment with Aaron is important when they're off on their own. Because Aaron tells them what the peacekeepers are from her point of view. And I think that's important. So far, we've seen the peacekeepers as essentially stormtroopers of the evil empire. Mm -hmm. So you need to understand why a person that you're supposed to like, like Aaron, would join them. And she says that they are hired by other cultures to maintain order. They're, in her opinion, in her value system they are a good in the universe even though you know we know they're bad and rigel reminds her that they kidnap and torture people and create coups yes like some other peacekeeping forces that i could name right now Mm. 
Speaking of Rigel, Rigel does catch up to John and Blonde Lady, and he's like, Really? Really? I left you alone for ten seconds and you picked up another goddamn Sebation? Yeah, John, John does do that, doesn't he? Pick up Sebations? Yeah. I mean, he's the one that made them take Aaron on board in the first place. Yeah. So, John goes off to look for Aaron and Dargo with Blonde Lady, while Rigel wanders off to reminisce about that one time Grand Moff Tarkin tortured him for a whole bunch. Yeah, Dargo does kind of have that look. He's, like, bald and scary, and he's got one eye, and he's got, like, the scar down his face. Mm. Yeah. The, what, what's it called? It's that German dueling scar that's a thing. I didn't know it had a name. Lots of villains have it, but I did not know it had a name. Yeah, it's a it's a reference to a thing that used to happen at German military academies. I that is fascinating. I had no idea. On the Zalbinian, John comes across a corpse, and Aaron realizes it's a corpse of somebody who was in her unit. So, Jelena gives her the news that since she defected, everyone who was in Aaron's unit has been demoted until Aaron is killed. Wow. Which hits Aaron really hard because these are people she's still loyal to, even though she's, you know, left the peacekeepers, been forced out of the peacekeepers. Yeah, it's on Grace. It's not on her. But it does give her an emotional moment of feeling guilt, essentially. I like that even though Aaron has joined up with Moya's crew, even though Aaron is not a peacekeeper anymore and John keeps telling us that she's good... I like that there are still reminders early on that that the way she was raised hasn't completely been erased from her yet. I do kind of like the non-sympathy John has when she's talking about, you know, oh, this is my fault. John's like, yeah, well. Right, because John doesn't care what rank these stormtroopers are. Fairly, right? They're, they're the bad guys. And Aaron hasn't completely come around to, wait, these guys are the bad guys. And I think it's interesting that the show lets Aaron be the protagonist of the story as she comes to the realization over several years that she was one of the bad guys. Hmm. Back on Moya, Zan does the one thing she does in this episode and realizes that there is a ship out there that's trying to stay just out of sensor range. Whoa. It's not crazy, though. It's the Battletoads. It's the Battletoads, who are called the Xiang. The Xiang are going to come back and decimate Moya, essentially. Mm. Yeah. Aaron freaks out at Jelena about this because clearly Jelena knew that they were going to come back, which she did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she knew that they had stripped everything they could carry, but they were going to come back and try to take the defense shield off of the Zelbinian because apparently the, the defense shield... Well, not operational is more or less repairable enough that it's worth stealing. It's the least damaged part of the ship, and it would be a big boon to the Battletoads, I don't know, army? Are, are they an official army? Are they raiders? I They're raiders, yeah. But it would, it would help them to have some serious military hardware. Yeah. Dargo goes back to Moya so that he can fight the Battletoads, and also so that he can give Zan, and therefore us, some exposition about them. You see, Max, you thought that the Luxons were the warrior race, but it turns out it's actually the Xiangs. Mm. The Luxons are, like, honorable warriors, but the Xiangs are, like, mindless warriors. They pursue everybody. If they sense weakness, they'll destroy you, but if they sense that for even a second that they don't have the advantage, they'll flee. 
this universe has a little bit of an whoops all warrior races uh aspect to it yeah yeah I mean, like you get two you get two warrior races well i mean we're in the uncharted territories so we're essentially in the old west hmm. so then everyone's an outlaw situation yeah exactly Back on the back on the Zalbinian, John and Aaron and Jelena are talking about whether or not they can reactivate the defense shield, whether or not they can fix it and therefore protect Moya when the Shiangs start firing. You know what this is, right? What? Something's wrong with the ship. Something's wrong with the ship. We have to fix X with the ship. Okay. To be fair, this is not something's wrong with the ship. Leviathans have no natural defenses and no natural weapons. Mm. They are cargo ships that can live in space and travel for long, long distances. But they are not battleships. I I suppose technically this isn't X is wrong with the ship, we have to fix X. But it is I mean, basically it, X is wrong with the ship. It's when you the same it. flavor. Yeah. Jelena tells them essentially that to fix the power conduits that power the defense shield, they're going to have to reactivate all of the batteries in sequence, which means that it's going to take time. It's going to take like eight hours, which they don't have. I think she says eight arms. 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 She arms. does. She does say arms. I avoided saying arms because I know you have so many issues with arms. Hours. Yeah. It's eight hours. But yeah, that's how long it's going to take to get it going. Well, it's just their thing for temperature was so clever. Yeah, yeah. It, it was optimal. Like optimal, and then it was like optimal plus or optimal or optimal minus. Like I really liked that as a like unit of measurement. Yeah. Well, I would say the fact that the translator microbes don't translate arns means that it is actually not exactly sixty minutes. Yeah, it's probably like I don't know, fifty four or seventy two or something. I'm going to say it's 48, mm. specifically because that is the length without commercials of an episode of dramatic television. So that's that's my headcanon right now. I'm just going to say that an Arn is the length of an episode of Farscape without commercials. Fair, yeah. I can see that. So she gets started on the repairs and we cut to the Xiang ship where we get our first look at the Battletoads. Yep, yep. The Battletoads are on their own industrial-looking ship. Lots of steam. I was going to say run down, but it's not run down. It's just industrial-looking. Mm. And they're really excited to have come across a Leviathan, because even though Leviathans don't have any defense capabilities or any offense capabilities, they are apparently ships that are great enough and powerful enough that these guys are super psyched to steal one. So, Dargo tells Zan that if things get damaged enough, they might have to retreat onto the what's it called? The Zalbanian. The Zalbanian. And Pilot's like, hey, instead of just ditching Moya, why don't we try to get Moya, like, away from the fire? It's scared of fire. Uh, fire bad. Also, like, not just ditching Moya, but ditching Moya and Pilot. Pilot's attached to Moya, so they're like... Welp, we're fucked, gotta go. Pilot's like, um, hi. How about no, please? So, in the subplot I kind of forgot was in this episode, Zan and Dargo are going to attempt negotiations with the Battletoads. They're gonna, it's funny because John, their bard, is off on the ship doing tech stuff, so Dargo's gonna have to do all of the bard stuff using purely his intimidation skill. Oof. 
he gets really angry at how frustrating the situation is and just starts screaming and cursing in Luxon. And Zan's like, oh, I know. And she opens a channel, a communication channel between their ship and the Xiang ship. And so what the Xiang see is a super close shot of Dargo ranting in Luxon. And they're like, oh, fuck. It's a Luxon. We don't want to get a Luxon mad at us because they're a warrior culture. You're also a warrior culture. What? Why are you scared of him? He was scared of you. Choose one. Well, I mean, presumably if they were evenly matched, a Luxon would win in a fight with a Xiang. So now the entire plot with Dargo and Zan is going to be bluffing the Xiang into thinking that they are evenly matched. You know, I would definitely take uh, the fire belch thing over the tongue venom. Really? Okay, but see, the tongue venom knocks someone unconscious. So I think it's more useful than the fire belch because the fire belch just burns people. But you can use the tongue to knock someone unconscious that you don't want to kill. Well, I mean, you can use the fire belch to, like, do other things, though. Like light a candle? Or get through doors or start a fire in case you need one. Okay. I mean, I guess you wouldn't if you were amphibian and therefore, you know, preferred cold. Okay, no, no, I can see that. Okay. I still would rather have the tongue knockout. I'll take the tongue knockout. You could have the fire belching. Okay. And then we'll, like, team up and it'll work out. This is how we're splitting it. That's how we'll split it. Although, I mean, honestly, I'd probably take Sans thing over, uh... Yeah. I don't know. Fire belching is pretty tempting. (laughs) So... Once they cut communication with the Xiang, Zan tells Dargo that he's got to lie to the Xiang. He's got to tell them that they have a military force behind them that can take them. And Dargo's like, as a warrior, I would never lie to an enemy. What? Spoilers, that is itself a lie. I don't think that's even consistent with stuff we've seen from Dargo thus far. Or that we will see from Dargo. This is kind of the lone moment where he's like, no, definitely I'm not going to lie to the enemy. And Zan's like, but it will save our lives if you lie, and who cares if you lie to a fucking Xiang? And Dargo's like, I thought you were a priest, which is weird to put some sort of universal morality on the concept of lying to save your life. Yeah, also, she's an anarchist. That's why she was in jail. (laughs) Right? So meanwhile, John is having sexy times with Blonde Lady. Yeah, Jelena and John are sharing a moment where... Jelena has sent Aaron off to get some more supplies that they need. And Jelena explains that she doesn't actually think she can reactivate the defense shield. It's too far gone. She only told Aaron that so that Aaron would not kill her. And John says, we're not killers. Wrong. Yeah, you all are killers. <laughs> Even even you, John. And Jelena does say, she's like, um, you killed Crace's brother. Which, to be fair, like, that's not his fault. That's not on him at all. And he does explain to Jelena, he's like, he crashed into me and died. That was... Yeah, like, if someone runs onto the highway and gets hit by a truck, you don't blame the truck. I mean, even more than that, if, like, a truck... Okay, so essentially what happens is, if, like, a truck runs a red light and hits a Camry, and against all odds, the guy in the truck is killed, and the guy in the Camry survives, you don't blame the guy in the Camry. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's more like if a VW bug was... It's more like if... No, that, that, that that's good. It's it's literally, he was sitting there in space, and Grace's brother ran into him and blew up. And that's not we, on him. Yeah, and as we 
talked about in the pilot? Crace's brother had plenty of time to change course. John was sitting there for a hot minute before Crace's yeah. brother's ship hit him. Yeah, he didn't appear out of nowhere. He was just sitting in space. This isn't even a Wizard of Oz thing. Like, it's not John's fault Crace's brother was an idiot. Did we talk, though, during the pilot about how much it's supposed to be a Wizard of Oz thing? We did. Okay, because, I mean, it is a Wizard of Oz. It's literally a Wizard of Oz thing. But yeah. yes, it's not a Wizard of Oz thing. So I never thought before about how much the wormhole is essentially a tornado. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we talked about the other Wizard of Oz aspects, but I hadn't thought about how the, like... Okay, so, obviously, John is Dorothy. Right. Who is... Uh, okay, so, John is Dorothy, Chris is the Wicked Witch of the West. Is Moya Glinda, or is she the Ruby Slippers? Moya is the Ruby Slippers, and Pilot is Glinda. Okay. All right, so... Dargo would be the Tin Woodsman, or would that be Aaron? No, that would be Aaron, because she needs a heart. Yeah, Aaron is the Woodsman, she needs the heart. Dargo is the Lion, he needs the Courage. And Zan is the Scarecrow? Okay, it kind of falls uh, it, it apart breaks, there. Yeah, break, it breaks down eventually, but... Back on Moya, or the Ruby... Back in the Ruby Slippers. Dargo and Zan are trying to convince the Xiang that they have a whole crew... That's there and ready to take them down. And the Shang's like, yeah, I think it's just the two of you. And Dargo's like, well, fuck you. I think it's just the two of you. Yeah, it's basically bluff check, bluff check, bluff check. Yeah. Just bluff checks all the way down. While Dargo and, and the Shang are doing this bluff check, Xan is staying off screen because Delvians are not as intimidating as Luxons, which is a mistake that you only make once, I will say. Yeah, okay. Oh, no, we're so scared of the, you know, knockout tongue people, but not the can-kill-you-with-their-brains people. I mean, they do have to be in physical contact with you to do it, and only high-level priests can do it, but... Kill you with your brain. Wait, yeah. th d does Zan have to be in physical contact? I thought her thing was that she could do it without being in physical contact. No, she has to be in Well... I don't know if higher levels than Zan can do it without being in physical contact, but Zan has to be in physical contact. No, but she's only level eight. We don't know how many levels it goes up. It's true. It's true. But Zan has been staying out of sight and kind of whispering at Dargo what to say. And when the conversation is ended and communication is cut, Dargo is, I think, rightly annoyed. He's like, please don't stand off to the side and tell me what to say when I'm in the middle of, like, really tense bluff checks. Yeah, seriously, you're not being helpful. But he also says that he thinks that, essentially, they've done as many bluff checks as the Game Master will allow, and at some point it's going to come down to a shooting fight, and that's probably the next time they have a conversation. Meanwhile, John and What's-Her-Bucket are having no chemistry. I think John and Zelina have plenty... I think John and Jelena have plenty of chemistry. She John gets Jelena's a thing I'd like to see. Oh my god, right? No, Jelena. John and Jelena. Oh. Two soft J sounds in a row. It's hard to say. But John and Jelena are having chemistry. Our couple name is James. <laughs> For Jenna and James. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jelena got a spark in her eye because peacekeepers are too badass to wear goggles while they work, apparently. So this gives John the opportunity to get, like, super close to her face and, like, look into her eye. He had more chemistry with Blinky Lady from last episode. 
the albino blinky lady. I mean, to be fair, she was pretty awesome. Rigel's back on Moya now, but he's having more flashbacks about being tortured by Durka on the Zalbinian. And Zan's like, hey, hey, shut up. You're freaking out the DRDs. And he's like, I am having so much PTSD. Honestly, for the character whose whole thing is being sensitive to what other people are feeling, Zan is like, well, go deal with your PTSD because it's annoying the ship robots. Hey, no one thinks about the DRDs. That's true. People are really mean to the DRGs. And I know I called them ship robots because they are, but they really have a kind of a, a dog aspect to them that makes me angry when people are too mean to the DRGs. Yeah. But in this case, it's not like Rigel's being mean to the DRGs. They're just unhappy at how freaked out he is. Yeah, like how dogs pick up on your emotional state. Exactly. Meanwhile, the main frogman is upset with his frog lieutenant for not frog murdering the right people the right amount. Yeah, one of the frogmen murders the other frogmen to take command of the ship because they disagree on how to deal with the Leviathan. Just so that you know what kind of people the frogmen are, they're basically mirror universe Star Trek people. Yeah, I don't get why they're not just invading Moya. Because they think that if they invade Moya, they'll find out that it's filled with Luxons who will murder them. That sounds like weakness to me. They really did, for this episode, have to walk a fine line where they kept the Xiang in a holding pattern where they weren't sure if Dargo was lying or not. If they were certain Dargo was lying, they would invade. And if they were certain Dargo was telling the truth, they would retreat. That's what was established. So, yeah, they did have to kind of hold it to a fine line there. So, meanwhile, lots of fast ship fix in action, or shield repair in action. Yeah. Yep. Everyone's sweaty, they're all wearing tank tops, they're all sticking fake tubes and other fake tubes, steam shooting all over the place. You know, it's funny, I I was saying this is more of a horror movie than an 80s action movie, but man, they did sure get everyone down to tank tops fast, which I feel like is definitely an 80s action movie trope. Although, although, Erin in this episode is not wearing her peacekeeper uniform. She's just wearing her... John McClane gray tank top? Yeah. Well, actually, I was going to say her Sigourney Weaver gray t-shirt. Mm. I feel like Aaron has given me some real Sigourney Weaver action in this episode. So they get the shield up right before the frog ship belches a fireball at Moya. Yeah, they do the dramatic thing where the missile is fired as the shield is generating around them. So just in time to block the missile, the defense shield comes together and saves the day. I do kind of enjoy the fact that the frogman's ship does the same fireball belching that the frogmen do. Yeah, yeah. It's like flying around in a spaceship shape like your head. <laughs> that actually sounds amazing, honestly. And you know what? In space, you don't need aerodynamics. So I think more human spaceships should look like giant human heads. Think how horrifying that would be in space. It'd be like that uh, Eddie Murphy movie, Meet Dave. I was thinking it would be like that episode of Rick and Morty with the giant heads. Yeah. Show us what you've got. <laughs> exactly. Back on Moya, Pilot reports that his scans show that while the defense shield is up, there are gaps in the defense shield. Uh, there are places where... It's like a colander. Yeah. It's was... a defense colander. I was actually thinking, essentially, even though these are the good guys, they have the exhaust port problem now. Yes. Erin is looking real... Uh... I mean, you were right on the money there. She's even got the big gun thing from Aliens. Yep, yep. Aaron is definitely Sigourney Weaver in this episode. 
She's Ripley. Yeah. Talking about what to do with the defense screen, John suggests, because Jelena lets him know that the defense screen is actually made up of two different screens that are activated at the same time. So John thinks, well, to cover up the holes, let's install one of the screens on Moya instead of here on the Zalbinian. So one of the screens will be active here on the Zalbinian. One of them will be active on Moya. They'll both be stretched over both of us and all of the holes, all the gaps will be filled. And Jelena is like, well, as a peacekeeper, I'm pretty much trained from the moment I was born to not put peacekeeper technology onto an enemy's ship. Technically, Moya is still a peacekeeper ship. Well, a I, I a mean, ship that's crewed by the enemy? Yeah, but she's still technically owned by peacekeepers. Well. If someone steals your car, it's still your car. <laughs> sure. Although that is not the loophole that Jelena finds. The loophole that Jelena finds is in John's deep brown eyes. She's mm. like, I will do it for you. Because your bard skills have once again saved the day. Yeah, it's true. Bards are more important than you think they are. You have definitely seduced the enemy. I will install a defense screen on Moya. Meanwhile, the Battletoads are talking about how they need to go and take care of this personally. Well, the Battletoads have also discovered that there are holes in the defense screen. So they're going to get into their ships and they're going to fly through the ever-shifting holes in the defense screen and land on Moya and kill what they are pretty sure is now just a single Luxon. I feel like there's a different version of this episode where the shifts, where the uh, shield's holes shift and they just cut all of the frog people in half. Yeah, there definitely is. Like, Moya turns slightly to the side and just... Yeah. Jelena is working on taking out the defense screen now so that she can put it on Moya, and she kind of trips while she does this, and, uh... Falls on top of John, you that's, know, like you do. That's Aaron's move, and also John's move to Aaron. <laughs> Those two are like Bella Swans at each other all the time. Yep, yep, Jelena stole the Bella Swan move, and uh, she's like, hey, you're pretty hot. And then the two of them start making out. She's Well, she's kissing his forehead. She starts by kissing his forehead. Then they start making out. So I guess kissing is a thing on... Uh... Yep, Peacekeeper's Kiss. Huh. Yep. Yeah, so John and Jelena go rat hole to rat hole. And Aaron shows up with two giant, heavy, like, tech pieces in her hands and is like, oh, oh, okay, I see how it is. I'm doing the work and you two are just going to stay here and make out. Also, Jesus fucking Christ, Claudia Black, those biceps. Yeah. She just grabs this giant piece of tech and she's like, well, if you're done making out, I'm going to go save all of our lives. Look, jealousy aside, which, by the way, this is the moment in the show where Aaron recognizes in herself that she's jealous and that that must mean that she has feelings for John, a thing that she has not previously recognized. Hmm. But that aside... I'd be super irritated if I came across two people making out while we were trying to not die. Seriously, I I mean, not the time. Not the time. Okay, fun trivia fact, though. She picks up, like, a really heavy piece of equipment and storms down the corridor and John storms after her and they have a conversation. Mm -hmm. This conversation had to be ADR'd later. Claudia Black had to go into a sound booth and re-record the lines so that they could put them over this because on the day, the sound wasn't good. 
I know you know what ADR is, but I thought maybe not all of our listeners did. Yeah. And to get the feeling of carrying something heavy so that her voice sounded right when she was in the sound booth, she lifted up the director and held the the director while she was saying these lines. Dang. I love Claudia Black. How could you not? So it's a good thing that this is all in the dark and kind of off because that helps sell the ADR is actually happening in... I, I actually, usually ADR, when you know what it is and you start to realize it, is really obvious and kind of jarring. But in this scene, it's not. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, John is, like, trying to defend himself. Essentially, he's trying to say that... What, you never get horny? Yeah, he's trying to say he was so horny he couldn't help himself. And he says to Aaron, like, hey, haven't you ever seen someone and you just had to, like, mack on them? And Aaron's like, okay, when I first met you, I thought maybe, but... And John's like, whoa. Are we talking about us now? Because I was not talking about us, but if you want to talk about us. Which really, John, I mean, you're fall you're always falling on top of each other. Yeah, the first time you met, she literally pinned you to the ground with her crotch. I, I think John didn't realize that that was how peacekeepers flirt. <laughs> I think he was just like, wow, this woman really does not like me. Which, I'm gonna be honest, is refreshing. It's refreshing that John was like just being friendly with her without thinking that there was something that was going to happen between the two of them. But now he knows that something might happen between the two of them. So it's basically a gender-flipped version of Deanna Troy and Worf. How do you figure that? Because she shows her affection through violence and John's empathetic and... Oh my god, you're right! Yeah. So, wait, is... Is Jelena Riker in this scenario? I guess, yeah. Okay, that's where we are. Okay, all right, I'm there. I'm there. By the way, I, I want you to appreciate me actually knowing that Worf and Deanna Troy dated at one point. I don't think that's any of the episodes we've watched. It, we have not watched any of the episodes where they are dating. I do appreciate that you know that. I basically, uh, I did the... Remember that episode of The Simpsons we watched yesterday where Bart had the smartasses guide to the Bible? Yes. I have that for Star Trek where I only know the weird, stupid stuff that happened in Star Trek. Nice. Have I mentioned to you before that Peter David, who wrote the book Imzadi, which is about why Deanna Troy and Riker have a love story for the ages that cannot be ignored, had to write a sequel called Imzadi 2 about how, wait, no, it's okay that she's in love with Worf now because people were so upset about her getting together with Worf. She ended up with Riker, though, right? Didn't, like, one of the movies establish that they ended up hooking up again later? I'm pretty sure yes. I stopped watching the movies. But yeah, I'm pretty sure yes. Fan-preferred couple always wins out. Except when it doesn't. I mean, I was worried for her physically being with Worf because, like, she talks about how Worf people, Klingons, are, like violent during sex and that wasn't something she was into and i'm like then maybe you shouldn't be dating this guy so later when star trek the next generation ends Worf will move over to ds9 mm-hmm. and Worf will end up hooking up with dax who is a much better match for him but the two of them like the running joke once they hook up is that the two of them are in sick bay constantly with sex injuries god we should watch some ds9 okay so back on the Zalbinian, I guess Rigel came over again. Okay, so it's weird to me. I know that Moya has multiple shuttles. But why is Rigel zipping back and forth between these two ships all the goddamn time, especially during a battle with the Battletoads? Right? Oh, I guess they're I guess they're hooked up. So I, I guess there's like some sort of, I guess their airlocks are 
They're yeah, airlock they're... to airlock. Oh my. Yeah. So I guess you are just walking back and forth and not taking a shuttle. So I guess I take that back. But yeah, for somebody who's afraid of the ship, Rigel is popping over quite a bit. Mm. But Rigel popped over to find Durka, and he does. He finds the corpse of Durka, and he sees that not only is Durka dead, but he has a blaster in his hands. Durka has... Shot himself. Right. When he realized the ship was going to be taken, he killed himself, which Rigel and all peacekeepers would see as a cowardly act. Hmm. So all of a sudden, it kind of takes away some of the fear of Durka because... At his last moment, he was not this super scary guy. He he lost the faith, as it were. So Rigel spits on him. And luckily, considering it's been hundreds of years, his Dominar medal is like right there on Durka's desk. So he takes his Dominar medal back too. Cool. Now he can reclaim his people anytime he wants. As soon as he can find them. So I guess the Xiang do have a bunch of people, even though we only see three of them, because they shoot off a bunch of shuttles, like dozens of shuttles, trying to get through all of the holes in the defense screen. It's the 90s. We kind of know how to use CGI. I was actually going to say that the CGI in this is not bad, especially considering when it was from. I think the defense screen is really well done. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's not bad for the 90s. It's Actually, it's very good for the 90s. So I, a few of the frog people get in. Some of them do explode, which... All of the named frog people get in. <laughs> Only unnamed frog people explode. I do appreciate that we see the shots inside of the cockpit of the shuttles of the frog people. Mm-hmm. And, very Star Wars-y. And it's very Star Wars-y. But of course, these are the villains, but we're getting very rebel shots of them. Hmm. On the Zelbinian, Jillian has done a thing. She has these two power things, tech stuff, like techno babble, whatever. Power converters. Yes. But Sent away to the Hashi station and everything. Look at you with all the sci-fi references this week. Yeah, I'm a regular, uh, I don't know any famous sci-fi fans. Is, <laughs> is the guy who played Wesley Crusher, does he count? Sure. I'm a regular Will Shorts Will, Will Shorts writes the New York yes, Times I, crossword I, I know, puzzle. I know what Will Shorts is. Yes. Anyway, the upshot of all this techno babble is that there are these two there are these two power things that are gonna be activated when Jelena does her thing, and John needs to hold them apart from each other because they're gonna be magnetically attracted, and if they touch, everything will explode. So, Uh-oh, attraction is bad. Wow, I didn't even I I didn't even really think about like the metaphor of that, you're right, it's a really obvious metaphor that I wasn't even thinking about. Yes, just like with John and Jelena, if they get too close, it will be explosive and things will be bad. Huh. Wow. Okay. I'm embarrassed to have not seen that really obvious metaphor. I'm kind of excited that you pointed it out. So I was but, just trying to establish what the stakes are, but okay, here we are. The important thing is that John is standing in the middle of the room holding two different things over his head away from each other yes he's holding these two paddles apart but a xiang has gotten onto the ship dun 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 yep so aaron has to find the xiang and kill it because john is not in any position to do anything yep he's just standing there where blue electricity goes over his chest yep and jelena is working as fast as she can to finish doing the things she's doing so that you know john stops needing to hold them apart so Aaron encounters one of the frogmen. She's holding her giant ass gun at him. She looks really Zagorny Weavery, but he burps fire at her. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing about when you encounter an enemy that can breathe fire. She, like, holds the gun at him and she's like, put your hands up. And he's like, okay. And puts his hands up and then breathes fire at her because he's essentially a dragon. Yeah. I mean, the Shang are essentially dragons. Until, there, we, until we meet another species later that's even more dragons. Okay. So, one of the Xiangs gets to the door, and John's like, Uh-oh, Aaron, please come save me, because I definitely can't let go of these paddles. I do like, he says, Froggy's come a-courtin'. Yeah. <laughs> Which, that's cute, I like that. But Aaron is being routed around the ship by one of the other Xiang, specifically so that she can't reach John. I do love how the frog guy is just belching as much fire as possible to... To, like, blow torches way into the room. So the frog guy is belching as much fire as he can to melt a hole in the door. Yeah, and I do, like, we've been talking about them breathing fire, but this is the first time John has actually seen them breathe fire. And I like his shock where he's like, why didn't anyone tell me these things could breathe fire? Which will be useful later on Previously Ons when we deal with Xiang later. Hmm. We, the Whoever's editing together the Previously on Farscape can just have John saying... Why didn't you tell me these things breathe fire? So that the audience knows that they breathe fire. So but they break into the room and they're setting everything on fire and... John calls him a gas hole, which I like. Because, you know, the fire is presumably gas powered. He says, listen, gas hole, if I, these things touch, we're all going to die. So, you know, stop. Yeah, and... Aaron just shows up and shoots the guy. She slides down a chain from the ceiling and shoots him like a fucking action star that she is. This whole sequence is very action movie-y. She blows him up and goes, sorry about the mess. Because she's a badass. And John and Delina are just like cowering in the corner like... God damn, we were going to fuck each other, but maybe we should both fuck her instead. There's a beautiful shot where she's walking. She's not in slow motion, but you can kind of feel the slow motion around the shot as she walks through the fire holding this giant gun. Yeah. So the frog person threat is now over. So the Xiang threat has been neutralized. And now the question is, what are the Moya crew going to do about Jelena? The answer is they're going to send her back because she can't say anything about them without getting summarily executed. Yeah, basically. So, obviously people are worried that she's going to tell Crace where they are and, you know, they'll... All be hunted down and murdered, but... Yeah. You know, it's actually nice. We saw Dargo using his intimidation earlier in this episode. Mm -hmm. And obviously John was always barding it up. But now we see Aaron essentially using bardic skills. She explains to Jelena, look, I've been in your position right now. And if you tell Grace, you're never going to be a part of the society you love. You're never going to see your family. You're never going to see your friends. And everyone you love is going to hate you. She's able to connect to her like peacekeeper to peacekeeper. She's like, I was in this position. I know where you are i know what you care about and i know that it will all get taken away just like it did with me so they go ahead and they have jelena send a distress call to Crace so the xiang will actually take off instead of loitering off to the side like they've been doing mm. but obviously moe's got to take off because you know Crace. Crace. and the xiang have this moment with dargo where they're like okay you obviously didn't have a whole crew but you bested us with your brain which I guess is honorable, but we will totally kill you next time we see you. And then they take off. Meanwhile, they're debriefing Blonde Lady. 
Yeah, but she's, I mean, she's going to have to lie for them. But she's cool with it because she has a giant space boner for John. And also she doesn't want to die and lose all of her friends and family. It's cute. Jelena gets both a moment with Aaron where she's like, hey, I respect you now, even though before I met you, I thought you were a terrible traitor who deserved to die. But oh, I ca- an excellent traitor. <laughs> yes, you were an extraordinary traitor who deserved to die. But now I see that you're cool. And then she has a moment with John where she's like, man, I would love to date you, but our circumstances are going to be really bad for that. Eh, we're not missing much. John is like, well, you could stay on the ship with us, which I'm sure everyone else would really love John. Yeah, bring another peacekeeper on board. Mm. But Jelena's like, no, I like my life, so I'm going to go back to the enemy and hang with them. I'm going to go be a bad guy some more. Yeah, you're cute, but you're not that cute. And she's like, you could come visit me on my days off, you know, on the ship with the guy who's trying to kill you. And they're like, well, I guess that's it for us. We're definitely never going to see each other again. Wah, wah. Yeah, they make out some more, and then she goes back to wait for Christ to come back and pick her up. Which, I mean, that's kind of a big assumption on her part that he's going to do that, right? God, I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, you're right. Well, you know, I think it's not so much for her as to protect the Zalbinian, which, as they have pointed out, is a peacekeeper treasure. Hmm. So, it's more to protect the Zalbinian from the Xiang than to protect this one grunt. <laughs> so... Now that he's debriefed Blonde Lady, John goes to debrief Aaron, and they have a little exchange about human greetings. Well, John's like, hey. She's like, why do you always say hey? What does that even mean? And he's like, it means that I'm putting the ball in your court so that you can talk if you want to, but not if you don't. And she's like, okay, I don't. He's like, okay, so now I'm actually going to make you talk because that's not a satisfying answer. He talks to her about how she did a good job murdering all those frog people and she's like well if i had done a better job then you probably wouldn't have had all that free time to make out with what's her bucket okay i really like this because aaron's like i didn't i don't like being ambushed and john's like um well you still came down that chain like a boss and killed everybody and aaron has to specify no she didn't like being ambushed by her feelings and i just love this distinction right as a peacekeeper or soldier Being ambushed by enemies is fine, because she can just shoot them. But emotions suck. Oh no, emotions. Look, John's specialty is emotions, and Aaron's weakness is emotions, so really they make a good team. So John goes, blah, 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 human stuff, blah, blah, I miss my old life, blah, blah. And she's, so look, I can relate to you, because I miss my old life. Except your old life is still out there. They just all hate you. Well, I mean, John thinks about it for a second, because... The two si- the two situations aren't really as analogous as you'd think upon first look. Right. Well, so he's just looking for a way home. So he's like, yeah, I am looking for a way home. But now I'm going to imagine what it would be like if I got home and everyone was dead. Which is essentially your scenario, right? You know where your home is, but you can never go back there. I mean, the thing is, it's not her scenario. Yeah, but I mean... It's everyone who ever loved her hates her now. Well, I mean, that's the analogy that John can come up with, right? Because he can't imagine people hating him. Mm. And I think that John gets a moment of empathy here. The kind of thing that's usually reserved for Aaron, where he's like, Oh, wow. Yeah, your situation's terrible. Huh. Sucks for you. Credits. I I think that kind of... This whole episode gave John an opportunity to see how different Aaron's reality was from his. The episode should have focused on that more. That was the strongest part of this episode, and it sort of barely comes in at the end. It's not just him realizing here that her leaving her life behind really means 
her old life is dead to her in a way that his is not. But also him realizing when they first got on the ship, oh, this is what your life was before you met me. This is, it's so different from what I experienced. And even when he meets Jelena, realizing, oh, I've been imagining peacekeepers as the evil empire from Star Wars because they essentially are. But now I see there's like day-to-day life and interaction and people and you lost all of that too. I see what you're saying, and I think that's a really good premise for an episode. I do not think this episode pulled it off at all. I think if you need to have a several-minute-long speech explaining what happened in the episode at the end of an episode, it means you have not done a good job establishing what the episode was about. All right, well... You can't just have your characters say how they feel. That makes me feel angry. All right, well, we'll come back next week because next week's episode, in the same way that the first episode of Star Trek Next Generation I showed you was the Highland Sex Ghost episode because I knew that that would be up your alley even though it's not... A good representation of what Star Trek is. Yes. If I was choosing the first episode of Farscape to show you instead of us watching it in order, it would probably be this next one. Okay, so I just want to summarize my feelings on this episode a little bit more. Okay. It did not feel cohesive enough. It didn't feel like it was following a single plot or even two or three plot threads that work together. It felt like too many disparate elements didn't have a cohesive enough theme. And that just didn't sell me on any of the character stuff. Well, the character stuff really works for me in this episode. But when we're talking about it, you're right. Thematically, it is all over the place. I mean, we have right like... We have Rigel's weird thing, which gets barely any time. Not that I'm complaining, I don't care about Rigel. But I feel like the frog person stuff just took away from what should have been an emotional, introspective episode. Yeah, I think they could have done the whole episode without this outside threat. I think they could have had a different way to force them to work together and spent more time on emotions and less time on fighting. Although... I'm not going to argue about Aaron coming down that chain. That was very cool. That was a very cool part of the episode. But this episode super did not work for me. Interesting. Well, let's talk about our segments. All right. So our first segment, A Distant Part of the Galaxy. Yeah, A Distant Part of the Universe, where we talk about what in this episode felt really alien to you. All right. So I really like, it's, it's such a small bit, but I do really like... Aaron talking about the fact that she grew up on ships like she it really kind of pulled into relief how different her life is from John and how different Sebations are from Earth people she's like I did not grow up on a planet these are not things I grew up around that was mine as well even in other sci-fi shows when we talk about alien races we don't get a lot of space faring races Mm. and those are always more interesting because that's where you get things that are truly truly alien and plus it sort of builds into why the sebations are like they are like why their culture is so important to them it's because that's all they have as a touchstone for their people Like, they don't have locations. They don't have... Finding the Zalbinian, which had been lost in battle, was essentially... It would be the Earth equivalent of finding Atlantis. So our second segment is... Strange alien creatures? Yes. The frog monsters, right? I mean... So, okay, we usually talk about the puppet that looks really good. In this case, the frog monsters are pretty remarkable. They're, They're people in rubber suits who both manage to 
move pretty well, or at least are shot so that any awkward movements are hidden, and have distinct facial expressions. Thank distinct you. Facia- distinct faces in general. Yeah, yeah. I mean, thank you, Jim Henson Creature Shop. I want to draw special attention to the guy uh, Dargo is talking to on the communicator thing. Maybe it's because they didn't have to make him move around as much, but he has a really, like, his face is a lot rounder, and the way his mouth kind of works differently, and it, it really works. I think that's probably my favorite. Yeah, in prepping for doing episodes of this show, I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos about the Jim Henson Creature Shop, and it's amazing how much they can get facial features to articulate. Our final segment is Looking for a Way Home, which is what in this episode really resonated with you. I guess it would probably be Aaron's stuff. Uh Uh-huh. I don't like that it was filtered through relationship jealousy. Yeah. That was dumb. But I do like her confronting the fact that her old life is dead. And I do like that she's done that before on the show, but this really feels like more of an autopsy. And I get why PK Tech Girl was a necessary thing. It's her explaining to a third party, essentially, why Aaron can never go home. So normally the new girl who's introduced to push the endgame ship along. So, you know, introducing... Apollo. Yeah, like the Apollo from Friends. Normally that's my least favorite trope ever, but I don't mind it here. Mostly because nobody acts outrageously. Mm. Like, Erin realizes in herself that she's jealous and she does not like it, but she moves on and john doesn't act like a jerk to either of the women and jelena's just there so yeah even though i normally hate this trope i actually don't mind it in this episode and i do like that it's going to push forward the john aaron relationship which i do like so i guess that'll about do it yeah i guess that's it for this week next week as i mentioned will be that old black magic the description for that episode is Crichton is placed in a head-to-head battle with Crace by a magical being named Maldus, who feeds off the emotions of others and makes himself stronger by absorbing all the negative energy and anger from Crichton and Crace. Maldus. So funny, too. And, you know, you asked if it's a Xan episode. Xan does have all that important stuff, and they don't even mention it in the description. So I, I'm excited to uh, to get to that old black magic. Yeah. But I guess that's it for this week. Yeah. Our show is partially listener-supported. If you want to be one of those supporters, you should head over to our website, www.welcometotelevision.net, and click on our Patreon link. We'd like to thank our current $5 and above patrons, Beryl, Patricia, Sam, Cassidy, Alex, Alicia, Ryan, Maracruz, Rosa, Javier, and Benjamin. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, you could always rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. If you want to talk about this episode, or any episode of any TV show, you should join our Facebook group, Welcome to Television. We can also be contacted at I Love TV Zines on Twitter, or at I Love Television Zines at gmail.com. So until next time, I'm Tina. And I'm Max. And this has been Welcome to the Uncharted Territories.